Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Murderous Mrs. Mitchell. On the 18th of April 1923, the first day of Hannah Mitchell's trial for the murder of Bertha Coughlin, there was a stampede for seats in Melbourne's criminal court. Hannah Mitchell stepped into the dock to hear the charges read against her. The Crown Prosecutor, Mr McKindo, dropped a bombshell by including an alternative charge designed to counter any challenge to the identity of Bertha Coughlin. And that was that on or about November 19, Hannah Mitchell had murdered an unknown woman. Mitchell entered pleas of not guilty. The judge asked the 12 men of the jury to put anything they had heard or read about the case out of their minds and to make conclusions solely based on the evidence and testimony offered in the court. The jury would, for the duration of the trial, be sequestered, so they wouldn't be exposed to the newspapers or subjected to anyone wanting to influence proceedings. A writer for Melbourne's Herald newspaper described the court's gloomy atmosphere. The court itself was a well of shadows, he wrote. Grey light from a grey sky filtered through the high window and in the lower gallery, rows of white faces were just discernible in the semi-darkness. For the next three days, the jury heard much the same evidence that had been presented in the inquest though there were some important additions. Bonfilio testified about Bertha's condition, the bathroom operation and the death. 
After Bertha died, he'd reckoned he'd said, shall I go and ring up the police? But Mitchell had replied, don't worry, everything will be all right. Bonfilio recounted how they'd disposed of the body and he offered his version of the shooting. Mitchell sobbed when he told this part of the story, but she couldn't help break into a smile when Bonfilio solemnly told the court that she had professed to him that she was in love with her solicitor, Percy Ridgway. On cross-examination, Bonfilio had to admit that he'd been in jail for assaulting Mitchell and that he'd racked up numerous convictions for such violence, though he claimed he'd been unjustly treated by the courts on every occasion. He told the court that Mitchell was the dominant person in their rocky relationship and that he did not boss or belt her. He denied he wanted revenge on her for putting him in jail and then divorcing him on the grounds of cruelty. He claimed that they'd gone shooting in the paddock they dumped the body and that 18 months earlier, Mitchell had said to him, if any of my patients ever die, this would be a good place to put them. The court heard again from Florence Spicer and Emily Tucker, but the most sensational evidence came from a new witness, Nurse Ilma Walters, Mitchell's next-door neighbour in November 1922. Though this wasn't revealed in court, she was Piggott's secret informant, the one who told him that Bertha's torso and head would be found in separate bags weighed down in water. Mrs Walters said she'd spoken to Mitchell on Sunday the 19th of November because she was worried about the condition of one of her own patients. If the woman died, Mitchell said, she should just bring the body over. Explaining her comment, Mitchell said, I may as well be arrested for two as for one. There is another dead one in there. She said this while indicating towards her house. Mitchell said the dead girl's name was Bertha and that she'd operated on her with three instruments, only realising at that point that it was an advanced pregnancy. A few days later, Walters asked about the body and Mitchell told her Bonfilio had dumped it in the bush. Then, on December the 22nd, Walters said Mitchell had looked tired and pale. She explained she'd been out all night at the dump site to move the body and put it somewhere a wandering swagman would never find it. Mitchell told Walters it had taken her two hours to locate the corpse. Then I pulled a branch away and there it was, Walters said, Mitchell had told her. I stood looking at it for two minutes, then I put it in a bag. I couldn't get it in and had to bend it. When I was bending it, the head snapped off. Walters said she'd asked what had happened to the body. It is gone, Mitchell told her. It is in the water. It is all gone. On the 31st of January, having already been interrogated by Piggott, Mitchell supposedly threatened Walters with, if you tell anybody, you will have to die. Under cross-examination, Walters told Mitchell's defence counsel, Mr Cusson, who was being instructed by solicitor Percy Ridgway, that she hadn't testified previously at the coroner's court because she'd been too ill. Hannah Mitchell's sister, Margaret Millwood, testified about Bertha Coughlin's last words as she sat with her rubbing brandy on her lips. The girl asked me to rub her hands and said that she was cold, she told the court. She caught hold of my hand and said, You are good and so kind to me. I will not be alive tomorrow. I said, 
Oh, yes, you will. She said, I am dying. I asked her where her boy was. She said that she did not know. I asked her what was her religion, and she said, Church of England. When I asked her name, she said something that sounded like cog. Millwood also testified as to having seen fetal matter and afterbirth amid the blood on Bertha's sheets before she was taken to the bathroom for an operation that involved curetting and flushing to remove any residual tissue and to halt the bleeding. After Bertha died, Millwood said, Mitchell threatened her with, You're my sister, and as my sister, I expect you to stick to me. Keep your mouth closed or you will go to jail. People who talk can be silenced. On Friday the 20th of April 1923, the court was due to hear from the one person yet to testify, Hannah Mitchell. Dressed again in black, she arrived in her royal blue limousine. Her daughter Queenie and her son-in-law Maurice, meanwhile, arrived in the Studebaker that had been used to transport Bertha Coughlin's body. That morning, Mr Cusson began the defence's case by saying Bertha Coughlin had died of perfectly natural causes. The first defence witness he called was a doctor specialising in what newspaper reports called women's complaints. This doctor described a certain abnormality that was apt to lead to a dangerous condition. He was talking about placenta previa, which can lead to a natural abortion preceded by pain and hemorrhage. During cross-examination, the Crown Prosecutor asked this specialist witness whether such a condition required a doctor and whether failure to call one amounted to gross negligence. Defence lawyer Mr Cusson objected, claiming that the prosecution was paving the way for the judge to direct the jury to consider manslaughter, a charge not previously introduced. The jury was sent out while legal arguments were conducted. When they returned, Mr Cusson took it upon himself to update them on what they'd missed. It has never been suggested, he said, that this is a case of criminal negligence. It is murder or nothing. There is evidence that the girl was suffering from certain natural abnormalities. Bonfilio and Millward, he said, had testified that Mitchell hadn't performed the operation until the girl was already in pain. The evidence given by the accused's own sister shows that the girl died as the result of an abnormality, and yet Mrs Millwood did not hesitate to protect herself at the expense of her sister. There is not a single suggestion that Mrs Mitchell touched the girl before she went to the races. Except, of course, Thomas Cook had arranged for an abortion. And Bertha Coughlin had already been at Nurse Mitchell's for four days before her condition worsened. Mrs Mueller had said she'd seen Bertha on the Friday night and was left with the impression she'd paid £20 for a procedure. Even if Mitchell didn't operate on Bertha in the days before she died, she might have given her drugs to induce a miscarriage. Defence lawyer Mr Cusson continued, Do you think that Mrs Millwood would not know what went on in the house? And would she not have revealed anything her sister did in her desire to escape the consequences on herself? If she had known anything, you can be sure that it would have been dragged out of her by the police and again in this court. Mrs Millwood is the type of sister who would push her sister up the steps to the scaffold. 
Mr. Cusson felt certain that Detective Piggott had put the hard word on Mrs. Millwood to obtain her testimony. The defence painted Emily Tucker as an adulteress whose words should be doubted and put solicitor Percy Ridgway in the witness box to testify that he had never held £400 of Mitchell's money to be used to bribe the Tuckers. Rather, he said he'd received a phone tip-off from an unknown woman who said Mrs Tucker had valuable information about Bertha Coughlin's movements. He'd sent a law clerk to see her and take her statement. This law clerk testified that Mrs Tucker had told him that she understood Bertha Coughlin had been operated on, but by an abortionist whose house was in Windsor. The law clerk took notes, but admitted it didn't occur to him to get Mrs Tucker to sign the statement. But Mr Cusson's most withering attack was on the prosecution's star witness. You have heard the dramatic evidence of Bonfilio, he said. I don't want to say anything about Bonfilio. I can't trust myself to do so. But then, of course, he did. Do you believe a word of what he says? Would you hang a dog on his evidence? In the box, he showed that he had the Italian conception of revenge and stopped at nothing, lies, perjury, anything. Cusson claimed Bonfilio had this poor woman absolutely under his Italian thumb and even she couldn't explain why she was so in his thrall. It was this domination that meant when Mitchell had wanted to call the police, Bonfilio wouldn't let her. Dumping the body had been all his idea. In a daze, she'd gone along with his plan, realising too late that he now had something over her he could use in blackmail attempts. Far from being a murderous mastermind, Mitchell was rather, in Cusson's words, like a baby or a toy in Bonfilio's presence, to be belted and threatened with a knife one day and embrace the next. The accused, he said, was the victim of a conspiracy. He told the jury, All of the people at the house were distracted and anxious to get rid of the body, and they all then deserted the sinking ship, trying to make out they were ignorant or innocent parties. Florence Spicer's evidence, that she'd been sent to find a man to dump the body, he said was simply incredible. Ilma Walter's story was similarly impossible to believe. Why would Mitchell have confessed to such a crime when she didn't know the woman? Meanwhile, Emily Tucker's bribery story had been contradicted by the upstanding Percy Ridgway. Why would these women have lied? Well, Cusson had a theory. There are some people whose desire to stand in the limelight, to be a star witness, makes them do amazing and incredible things, he told the jury. After adjourning for lunch, the court was ready to hear for the first time from the proceedings' real star, Nurse Hannah Mitchell. Under Victorian law, as it then stood, she was not made to testify under oath, nor was she able to be cross-examined by the prosecution. Mitchell told the court that a young lady she knew by the name of Miss Eastwood had consulted with her on November the 18th. This young woman said she was five months pregnant and wanted to arrange to have her baby delivered and adopted out by Mitchell the following March. Mitchell explained her terms and, consultation finished, the pregnant woman left, only to return a short time later, saying she wanted to remain at the Burnley Street house for about a week because she was feeling sick. From signs I saw, Mitchell said, 
I concluded that she was suffering from kidney trouble and advised her to see a doctor. She said she had already been to a doctor for her general condition. She stayed in the house that night. I did not notice that anything was wrong with her. Mitchell said that on the Saturday afternoon, she and Bonfilio returned from the races at about 4 or 4.30, but that she left him at the door. Nothing was wrong in the house. She had a wash, opened some letters, and slept for an hour or two. She wanted to have an early dinner because she and Bonfilio planned to go out to the pictures or the theatre. Mitchell continued her testimony. I heard someone call out, Nurse. I went into the second bedroom. The young woman was on the bed. She said she was very ill. I could see that the hemorrhage was very bad. I knew the girl's condition was serious and that death might possibly result. Mitchell said she instructed her sister, Mrs. Millwood, to call a doctor. I said she might die in her weak and exhausted condition and asked if she had any message to give to anyone in case the worst happened, Mitchell said. The girl said her name was Eastwood. I asked her who was responsible and she said, my boy, and gave the name of a country town which I could not remember. She told me her engagement was broken off by her boy. Mitchell said a certain event then occurred, which was the premature stillbirth of the fetus. I gave her cold drinks at intervals and saline injections and massaged her for two hours. My sister brought her brandy and water. I remember that I said to my sister that I was glad that the girl's baby had been born. I treated the girl with various things and finally I thought that she had recovered. Mitchell's sister hadn't been able to reach a doctor, so now Mrs Millwood looked after the patient while Mitchell made some calls. I tried several doctors but could not find one to come, she claimed. Bertha's bleeding had worsened. Mitchell asked who she could contact if the worst should happen. I have no one who cares for me, Bertha supposedly said. I have no mother and have no one to whom I could give a message. Mitchell said she called Bonfilio to come and help me save her life. He asked me why I didn't get a doctor and I told him I had tried to get one. They took Bertha to the bathroom and treated her with hot douches before taking her back to the bedroom. I said to my sister, I don't like this case. I'm very tired and cannot do more for the girl. I have exhausted my strength. I will see again if I can get a doctor. I again tried to raise Central on the telephone, but I felt very ill, partly from sympathy for the girl. Because she was feeling so faint, she told Bonfilio to keep trying for a doctor. I then went to lie down, Mitchell said, very grief-stricken. Questions the prosecution weren't allowed to ask included. Why had Mrs Mueller testified that Bertha Coughlin had gone to Nurse Mitchell's house on the 14th of November when Mrs Mitchell said she'd admitted the girl on the 18th of November? As to what Mitchell had done once Bertha Coughlin's condition was so serious, the prosecution might have asked for the names of the doctors she'd tried to call and the reasons they'd given for not coming. And why, failing to get a doctor, hadn't Mitchell simply called a taxi and had the driver take their seriously ill patient up the road just two miles to St Vincent's Hospital. Continuing her evidence, Mitchell said she didn't remember anything more until Bonfilio woke her up. I then went into the bedroom and looked at the face of the girl. I said, why didn't you call me? The girl is dead. The best thing for you all to do is to go to bed. I am very tired 
and I feel like dying myself. Mitchell said she swooned again when she went back to her room and remembered nothing more until Bonfilio came in with some breakfast hours later. That Sunday in the house, Mitchell said, was immensely sad, though she had nothing to feel guilty about. She told the court, There was nothing for me to be afraid of. Bonfilio came in to me and I said, I am going to ring up the police. He said, No, if you do, he said, they'll put the blame on you for the death of the girl. He told me that Detective Piggott had told him he was going to get me and said, If you ring up the police, Piggott will say you did it. I said, Piggott cannot say it because I didn't. He said, Think of your children. Think of me. I love you. I went in and had a rest on my bed. After a little while, Bonfilio came in and said, You know I love you. I'm going to prove I love you. I'm going to take away the body of the girl and bring it where it will never be found. I said, Don't be silly, Frank. What good will that do? He argued with me and told me again and again that he loved me and was going to do this for me because he loved me. I was faint and sick and I gave in to him, although I had nothing to be afraid of. I had no desire to hide the body, Mitchell told the jury. It was against my thoughts, inclinations and honour. With the trouble and sadness and Bonfilio's dominating manner, I did not take much notice of the girl's body. It did not concern me very much. You may think it strange, but I knew she was past all hurt in this world. Therefore, it did not seem to be a very terrible thing. I knew her soul had flown, and I did not look on the disposal of the body as a crime. Mitchell claimed she wasn't sure where they had driven and wasn't really involved when they reached their dark destination. I did not carry the body, she said. Bonfilio did that. I did not notice where he put the body exactly. I did not go right down into the gully. I sat near the top. I remember very little about it, only that it was cold and dark and I was cold and tired. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Mitchell said that while some of her sister's evidence was true, her sister had omitted their repeated attempts to get a doctor. As for Emily Tucker, Mitchell admitted to talking to her, but only because the woman claimed she knew of a frame up to send Mitchell to jail. Mitchell said on hearing this, she'd urged Mrs. Tucker to report this to the police and to Percy Ridgway. Mitchell denied knowing Ilma Walters, let alone confessing anything to her about a botched abortion and body disposal. But she did say she'd seen Bonfilio and Mrs. Walters talking several times in the garden, implying that they had cooked up the story together. But this couldn't explain what Mrs. Walters had told Detective Piggott about the body's removal because Bonfilio had no idea it had been taken from the gully. Further, what Mrs. Walters had said Mitchell had told her actually aligned with the accused's own evidence that Bonfilio had done the actual dumping and she hadn't known exactly where the body was. This would explain why it took Mitchell two hours to find and move the corpse. 
Again, none of these questions were allowed to be put to Mitchell by the prosecution. Mitchell summed up her position to the jury with, I never did anything wrong to the girl, nor did I do anything to cause her death. Hannah Mitchell had spoken unchallenged, but the Crown had the last word. Prosecutor Mr McKindo told the jury that his purpose wasn't to convict an innocent woman. While the charge was willful murder, it wasn't suggested Mitchell had intended to kill Bertha Coughlin. The critical question was, what had caused Bertha Coughlin to die? Mitchell had stated she could not get a doctor. Was Melbourne, Mr McKindo asked the jury, such a dreadful place that if one of their wives was bleeding to death on a Saturday night, they wouldn't be able to get a doctor? Mitchell, he said, knew she was guilty, and that's why she had to get rid of the body. After all, if Bertha had died of natural causes, she wouldn't have been dumped in the bush. Mitchell, he noted, had said nothing about the body's removal and its callous dumping in the Yarra River. Why had she moved the corpse? And why had she shot Bonfilio if not to shut his mouth? As to whether Mitchell was a trembling girlish figure living in fear of Bonfilio, the prosecutor asked the jury to remember the threats Mitchell had made against Mrs. Spicer, Mrs. Walters and her own sister. The Crown prosecutor said that if the jury came to the conclusion that Mitchell had performed an illegal operation on Bertha Coughlin and that that had caused her death, then they must find her guilty of murder. The judge, Justice Mann, had already told the jury he was satisfied the remains were those of Bertha Coughlin and had withdrawn the second charge of murdering an unknown woman. But Justice Mann now did instruct the jury to also consider manslaughter, meaning they could conclude that Hannah Mitchell had not illegally operated on Bertha, but had nevertheless caused her death through gross negligence by failing to get a doctor. At 5.30pm, the jury retired to consider their verdict. At 8.12pm, the customary loud rap from the other side of the jury door announced they had reached a verdict. Three tense minutes followed as the 12 men filed in and the court filled with spectators. Hannah Mitchell walked in slowly, hand on her heart, and stood in the dock, facing the jury, pale but standing tall. The jury foreman read the verdict on the murder charge. Not guilty. And of manslaughter? Not guilty. Mitchell swayed slightly and stared vacantly as the verdict sank in. Discharge the prisoner, ordered Justice Mann. Mitchell walked tentatively from the dock, collapsed into the arms of her daughter Queenie and cried profusely. In the corridor outside the courtroom, Mitchell was swarmed by so many affectionate and cheering women friends that she again broke down. Mitchell was led to her waiting car and driven away to yet more cheers. A free woman, at least until she faced court again for shooting Bonfilio with intent to murder. On Thursday the 3rd of May, Hannah Mitchell was in Richmond Court 
her familiar battleground with Frank Bonfilio. She posed for photos outside. Inside the court, it was standing room only, with the crowd 10 deep at the back of the room to watch Mitchell plead not guilty. The inquest began with a doctor from St Vincent's testifying about Bonfilio's wounds and to his patient's nervous anxiety as to whether he'd die. Senior Detective Frederick Piggott acted as prosecutor and, in order to give more weight to Bonfilio's hospital statement, tried to establish whether the doctor had agreed that Bonfilio might succumb to his wounds. Percy Ridgway, directly defending Mitchell, objected sarcastically to such speculation. Piggott pursued another angle, asking the doctor, what was the result of these wounds? Ridgway interjected, he was well enough to go out travelling with the detectives in a car. Piggott shot back, I don't think you have any right to say that, considering there was a dead body which had to be found. Ridgway scoffed, oh, we've heard enough about that. The doctor said that at the time he'd thought Bonfilio would probably recover from his wounds. In the doc, Bonfilio repeated the story he'd told at the murder trial about Mitchell wanting to marry him and being ambushed by her after he said he wouldn't. Under vigorous cross-examination, Bonfilio denied the revolver was his and denied ever owning a revolver, despite a revolver being found under his bed during the 1913 illegal casino raid. Bonfilio denied he owned the knife that had been found under the pillow and said that the razor found on the bedroom floor wasn't his but belonged to Queenie and that she used it to cut her corns. He also denied having mooched or demanded money from Mitchell and reiterated that all of his assault convictions had been unfair. Further, Bonfilio denied he'd hit or threatened Mitchell on the Saturday she'd shot him. Percy Ridgway said that no jury would convict his client on the word of a pariah like Bonfilio who should be deported. But Mitchell was committed to trial on the charges of having wounded Bonfilio with intent to murder and of wounding him with intent to do grievous bodily harm. The trial started on the 24th of May 1923 at Melbourne's Criminal Court. The he said, she said testimony was retold with little variation, though there was a moment of comic farce when the defence counsel, Mr Cusson, handed Bonfilio a revolver and asked him to insert a bullet, and Bonfilio fumbled with the gun as though he'd never touched one before. For the defence, a doctor testified as to having examined Mitchell two days after the shooting and finding bruises on her legs and body. A neighbour said she'd visited Mitchell the day of the shooting and seen similar injuries. Patricia Mitchell, the accused 17-year-old daughter, said she'd heard Bonfilio demand money the night before the shooting and the next morning had seen him hit her mother with a broom before menacing her with the revolver. Queenie, meanwhile, said the razor wasn't hers and that she certainly did not use a razor to cut corns because she didn't have any. Concluding for the defence, Mr Cusson said his client had simply used the revolver to protect herself from a brutal and cunning man. The next morning, Hannah Mitchell got her say, again not required to testify under oath and free from cross-examination. 
She told the court that Bonfilio was an Italian and she'd come to find out that an Italian chap isn't nice, I suppose. She had loved him once and, as a good woman, had done her best for him, caring for him and giving him money. But she'd found out his true nature. He was a beast, a bad man and continually cruel to her. He was a dog, she said, and a madman. On the Friday night, after refusing his demands for money, he'd hit her and knocked her down, her face becoming bruised and swollen. She felt so bad, she'd taken to her bed. But then she felt cold metal at her cheek. It was a knife. If you don't give me the money which I require to pay a debt, I will cut your head off, she testified Bonfilio had said. She replied, cut my head off. I am sick and tired of your violence and treatment of me. The next morning, Bonfilio called her terrible things, sabotaged her car to prevent her leaving, and then hit her with a broom. Mitchell said she retreated to her room, and then she saw him with the gun. She managed to flee, screaming, Do not shoot me! Then she heard the door bang and thought Bonfilio had left. Seeing the revolver, she picked it up with the intention of hiding it. Then he came at her with a razor. They struggled. He got shot. You have shot me, he said. She replied, it is your own fault. You know how I have cared for you. It is the end of our life. Then, with his words, you have shot me, ringing in her ears, she went to the telephone and called the police. I have shot a man, she said. Concluding for the prosecution, Mr McKindo said Mitchell and Bonfilio were abnormal people who lived together even after they'd divorced. Because of what had happened with Bertha Coughlin, she had needed to shut his mouth by fair means, marriage, or foul, murder. If Mitchell had succeeded in killing Bonfilio, he asked the jury, would she have called the police or would he have ended up dumped in the bush? Realising she'd made a mistake in letting him live, she'd planted the knife under the pillow and thrown the razor on the floor and then feigned surprise at his escape when the constable arrived. Did not that story ring truer than anything she had said? Justice McFarlane directed the jury to consider also an alternative count of unlawful wounding. The 12 men retired to the jury room. They returned an hour later. The accused, the foreman said, had been found not guilty on both charges and not guilty on the third possible alternative of unlawful wounding. Nurse Hannah Mitchell again walked free and into a rapturous reception from her female friends outside the court. A writer for the Australasian on the 2nd of June, 1923, put Hannah Mitchell's not guilty verdicts down to her persuasive courtroom speeches. Until her address was delivered, the Crown had a case which seemed unassailable unless direct and contradictory sworn testimony was available to the defence. Such evidence was not forthcoming 
but the jury was swayed by a woman with a ready tongue and Mitchell is now at liberty to resume a business in which she has recently become notorious. While Mitchell's eloquence no doubt had an effect, her cause was also helped by the Crown in both trials having to rely on the evidence of Bonfilio, a man about whom there was every reasonable doubt. But the law itself worked in Mitchell's favour because a death arising from an illegal abortion had to result in a murder charge, and a murder charge successfully prosecuted would result in an automatic death sentence. The punishment seemed to outweigh the crime, especially in the minds of all-male juries, some of whose members had themselves no doubt relied on the services of backyard abortionists. But the single greatest factor operating in Hannah Mitchell's favour was the inadmissibility of the past charges levelled against her. What the juries in her 1923 trials weren't allowed to know, or to take into account if they did, was that this wasn't the first time Hannah Mitchell had been charged with murder. Nor, as it turned out, would it be the last. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. To hear the rest of Hannah Mitchell's story, download the final episode of The Murderous Mrs. Mitchell. If you've liked this episode so far, I'd love it if you could leave a review or a rating on the podcast platform that you use. And don't forget to subscribe so you get every episode as soon as it's released. If you want to see photos and newspaper articles about Hannah Mitchell, head over to ForgottenAustralia.com. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.